0: so uh, you know both with high dose ketamine and psilocybin a lot of people attest to experience experiencing what's known as ego disillusion or Mm -hmm. ego death um which again can be harrowing for Mm -hmm. for someone who hasn't had that you know for the first time to really kind of lose your sense of self um but in a lot of ways it can lead to a a, this deep feeling of calm and interconnectedness with the universe as well And, and i think uh um it lowers a lot of neuroticism, that is for sure. But kind of a, a deeper contentment overall is where you come out on the backside. But, you know, for a lot of people, if you, especially if you have what's known as mental rigidity, um, you know, people have, in, who are kind of fall into that subpopulation have a tougher time responding. Mm-hmm. So it can be tougher to let go and really sink into that experience. But, you know, that is like the most therapeutic um, kind of subjective effect with psilocybin and ketamine. And there's of a, a rating that we call peak mysticism, mm-hmm. where you kind of achieve a mystical state in a way, and it's sort of a, a questionnaire that people can attest to. And if they achieve that, it usually correlates very heavily with a strong you know, durable therapeutic effect. MDMA is very different in that it really, it's
1: not dissociative. It's not hallucinogenic in any way. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition health technology fitness relationships and mindset we cut through the bs to get you real answers and solutions so let's hone in so i am so excited to have tim Schlitt with us here tim is the founder and managing partner of palo santos ventures a close friend, we randomly met each other, had gone on two vacations (laughs) within the
0: span of a month. A couples retreat in there as well. So our girlfriends and Matt, it's like, yeah,
1: fast friendship. Fast friendship. And we live in the same city. Who would have ever thought that was gonna happen Yeah, yeah. Uh, And we went to dinner last night too. Yeah, yeah, there we go. It's it's funny how, how quickly things can come together in the right circumstances, and so I'm excited to have you on today. Thank you. I know even more so a lot of the guys here are incredibly geeked about this entire conversation. Tell us what you guys do.
0: Yeah, so we're a venture capital fund seed series A stage that invests across the psychedelic universe. So we were founded back in 2021 and just closed on our $50 million fund one and have been very active in kind of backing early transformative companies in this space. And we got in now, you know, it's certainly in the zeitgeist. We got in at a time when it was much less cool to get in, but we felt like there was a need for rigorous technical due diligence and bringing real scientific rigor to the space. So we primarily back a lot of biotech companies and our focus is largely on early stage drug discovery within psychedelics.
1: That is such a crazy thing to get into. And where did you, how did you decide all of a sudden one day I'm going to put together a $50 million fund to go back psychedelics?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I came out of an ayahuasca journey, you know, and I was like, (laughs) all right, here, no, no, it, uh, it was, it was a long journey. So Mm -hmm. I got in, well, I'll start with this. First off, have had a deep attachment to mental health my whole life. Yep. So um had my own run with severe depression back in high school. So long time ago, but it's a deep, dark anhedonia that no one should ever have to go through. So always had a fascination with psychiatry. And fast forward to 2018, started looking into alternate modalities for treating depression outside of antidepressants, which carry A whole host of nasty side effects. I think they're kind of a necessary evil is how some people view them. And there was a lot of really compelling research around psychedelics for treating depression out of Johns Hopkins, NYU, Imperial College London, you name it. So really reputable universities. And I went, holy crap, there's something here, something to really look at more deeply. I come from a healthcare background as well within finance, but focused on life sciences. So kept pursuing that. And then fast forward two, three years later, um, Launched the fund, kind of off of the network we built and the the sourcing pipeline that we'd cultivated.
1: So, I got to ask you this: like, you've been doing it now for three years? Uh, almost five. Almost actually. five. Yeah, that's, that's a long time. You get yeah. to see the- It's a lot of drugs. A, <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of psychedelics. <laughs> it's, a, like, it's a lot of it's like, <laughs> and, and, and I've got to imagine you're also you're also making sure that the product works before you're investing behind. Don't
0: it. knock until you try it. So, don't it's, knock uh, try I, it. I, And I will say, yeah, as part of that journey in a deep passion for these early on, I started with psilocybin was the first modality, found a great guide, which I do think anyone who wants to work with these, I cannot offer medical advice, but if someone is going to do it, they should absolutely have a trained therapist and had an incredibly transformative experience. So a big time believer in the, the therapeutic potential of these.
1: 100%. The one thing I just want to just touch on you get to see the newest research out there. What's, I think, maybe the most interesting stuff that you're seeing that the rest of the world doesn't even know about yet?
0: I think it's lesser known, but the neuroplasticity hypothesis around psychedelics, I think, is really, really interesting. So there's a lot of really good evidence that, you know, when people are in a depressed state, there's kind of a neuronal atrophying. So if you look at, imagine a tree for example and it's like the the branches are withering in a way so if you look at a neuron the branches are what are called dendritic spines they start to atrophy and when we administer psychedelics we certainly observe this in rodent models but you get a lot of regrowth so what we call dendritogenesis the term but imagine kind of a tree going back to a healthy state it's very lush there's a lot of branches back on it a lot of new neural connections which i think is really interesting and there are some companies pioneering work in that there's one we're invested in called delix therapeutics working on trying to tweak molecules to make them highly neuroplastic so really kind of juice the uh the, the dendritogenic quality of those drugs
1: And when you take an SSRI or you take any other kind of, we'll call it drug specifically aimed at mental health, does it have the same exact quality?
0: I think there's, you know, SSRIs have gone through kind of a a meandering route of what the true mechanism is. Some people have hypothesized, are they somewhat anti-inflammatory? I think there's been some talk of, could you see... Um, you know, some neuronal regrowth, but I don't think the neurogenesis we see with SSRIs is nearly on par with what we, we see with psychedelics.
1: And how big is that neurogenesis? 10%, 5%. Um,
0: you know, it's interesting. I'm, I had quantifying it. I don't know off the top of my head. I do know the analysis done is what's called a shoal analysis. So you look at a neuron and there's kind of rings, Mm -hmm. you know, imagine like rings on a tree and the more they grow out kind of the more goalposts they pass. Um, you know, that's a marker of, of enhanced neurogenesis. So psychedelics are very potent by that assessment, but quantitatively, I'd did a, I have, a, I have a tough time boxing it in off okay. the top of my head.
1: And would it be fair to say that if I took a lot of psychedelics very often that I would have, I would pass more of these goalposts or is, <laughs> that, a, is, that, a, is that a bold statement? <laughs> Maybe don't
0: take it too far. They, uh, they have done tests in, in rodents of like giving them LSD daily for like months mm-hmm. and they become incredibly violent. <laughs> so okay. they, so don't, don't do these too often. I think these are, are definitely designed to be intermittent. But one thing I will say, you know, as you track, we've seen this um, of kind of like someone below a healthy baseline, you know, when they're in a, a depressed state and post-psychedelic experience, that I'm talking traditional psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, they go way above it. So you kind of get this regrowth. They go way above, if you imagine, kind of the, the mean. Mm-hmm. They go above it. And then they don't, there's a bit of a pruning that the, the brain goes through, but they don't go back below a healthy baseline. They actually go back to a healthy normal state which I think is really interesting as well. And it seems to stay that way for a very long time. It's very durable with traditional psychedelics. Ketamine is a different story. That's mm-hmm. kind of in its own camp. You sort of go above and then you return. And that's why people usually have to repeat dose ketamine more often, usually every two weeks to four weeks. So
1: without. what are they, when you talk about psychedelics, what are those different categories?
0: So the big ones, you know, so there are some purists in the field who would say, Um, Like psilocybin, LSD, DMT are true psychedelics and things in in that camp. And the way we think of them is they're serotonergic drugs. Mm -hmm. So they operate on serotonin receptors. And there's 14 different subtypes of serotonin receptors. They're very potent at a specific one called the 5-HT2A receptor. So serotonin 2A receptor. So that's what a lot of purists would say is you branch out from that and we do a bit at palo santo because that would be a really really siloed bet if we were, were to only bet on those so ketamine operates on what are called glutamatergic targets so it's nmda receptors it blocks an excitatory neurotransmitter called glutamate so very different, but you do go into a highly dissociated state, which a lot of people will say rhymes to a great degree with psychedelics. And then beyond that, ibogaine is another one a lot of people talk about. It primarily operates on kappa opioid receptors, so more of an opioid antagonist, but it is a very dirty molecule. So some people think it hits 5-HT2A in other targets.
1: And but. When you talk about dissociative, what does that exactly mean? I've seen, I've hear people talk about it all the time, specifically in regards to ketamine. But what is that? What is the experience like?
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, subjectively, there's visual effects, of course. I wouldn't describe it as hallucinogenic. You know, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not seeing anything. And even with traditional psychedelics, rarely do people really see things that aren't there things can take on a wavy quality stuff like that but but internally the brain goes into sort of a more entropic state like you're able to to evaluate pathways you normally wouldn't it helps people kind of shut in with a lot of these we see a shutting off of what's called the default mode network mm-hmm. so uh, again the brain really lights up a lot of regions that don't normally communicate begin to communicate with each other and for a lot of people i think the best way to describe it is it's like psychotherapy on steroids Mm -hmm. it's like taking hours you know what would be months of psychotherapy and condensing it to a few hours Now, i'm kind of generalizing between ketamine and traditional psychedelics but you know different people respond differently to different drugs so there's a lot of heterogeneity but some people prefer ketamine others traditional psychedelics
1: and so is that is it fair to say that what traditional therapy forces you to do is connect different parts of your brain or make associations between events that you normally would have and that psychedelics actually just accelerates that process or are they two separate things
0: um i think some people would certainly say that i mean if you think of therapy as kind of getting more to the roots of what's really you know driving some qualm or or driving a mental health disorder you know an ability to really cut through a lot of the brush and really get to the heart of a matter, I think psychedelics do help that. And part of that, that shutting down of the default mode network, a bit of kind of, you know, toning the mind down to, to not block out what you're normally blocking out, um, I think certainly helps. There's also a pharmacology to this. So there's a biological substrate without a doubt. But I do think people think the psychotherapeutic quality certainly helps and enhances these.
1: In a lot of ways and then even outside of psychotherapy and we're gonna even dive in, in into a second here further into that What are the other therapeutic uses?
0: um So one thing we didn't hit on, I mean, we talked about neuroplasticity um, is kind of one hypothesis and one mechanism here. You know, another really interesting one, we have one of our scientific advisors, Chuck Nichols, has done a lot of pioneering research in this field um, and discovered this. But a lot of traditional psychedelics are potently anti-inflammatory as well. So there could be uses beyond even neuropsychiatry, which could be really compelling. I mean, Western diets, Western lifestyles highly inflammatory. So, you know, a lot of psychedelics at very low doses as mm-hmm. well temper that inflammation to a great degree. So it's subperceptual doses. Many do not all of them, which is interesting. So LSD doesn't um, psilocybin does seem to be pretty potent. And then what are known as the phenethylamine. So stuff in kind of the mescaline family. So peyote cactus, the uh, San Pedro cactus are kind of the, the plants that that comes from, that seems to be very, very anti-inflammatory and stuff with kind of that general chemical scaffold, which I think is interesting.
1: So is it, is it also crazy to say that there may be a pill that we take every day when I take my vitamins in the morning that is subperceptual dose that actually helps reduce inflammation in my body?
0: Potentially. Potentially. Yes. The one rate limiting factor I will say, and we can, we'll probably get into a microdosing discussion later is so psychedelics hit what I called 5-HT2A. There are homologous receptors. So there's 5-HT2B, which is heavily expressed on the heart. Mm -hmm. And so active prolonged use of psychedelics could induce some cardiac adverse events would be the only thing. So some people are trying to engineer that out. There is a bit of medchem where you probably, in one of our, our scientific advisors, John McCorvey, had a really seminal paper on this of ways you can tweak some of these molecules to really block 5-HT2B effect. So folks are working on that. So maybe, you know, that would certainly be potentially conducive to a daily pill. Um, but then you also do develop tolerance as well to many of these, even at the 2A receptor, which seems to mediate a lot of the therapeutic effect. So those are some of the rate-limiting factors. A lot of what we're betting on at Palo Santo is the Gen 2 of psychedelics, so moving away from the ones we know from the 50s and 60s in this next-gen with an optimized pharmacology that could solve for some of those rate-limiting factors.
1: So is it basically taking molecules that have already existed, that we know how they operate, and saying, how do we modify them some in some manner? And that should theoretically maybe only target H. 2A versus
0: 2B? Um, Yeah, that would be one, exactly. And there could be other serotonin targets you can get into polypharmacology, which gets the combinatorics gets really complex. Mm -hmm. But that's the idea is we think we know kind of the key receptor targets that seem to mediate therapeutic effect. And there's been a lot of studies to kind of validate that. If you block it, you don't get therapeutic effects and you unblock it. And then you do, there's two-way blockers. So how do you engineer drugs exactly to do that? A okay. Be more targeted, not have the the deleterious off-target effects
1: okay. as well. So now let's let's actually kind of shift to what maybe I'll call like execution, right? What is a microdose?
0: So there's a it's an interesting debate because mm-hmm. some people would say some people would are what a microdose should be should truly be a sub perceptual dose. Mm-hmm. So a dose you take where you don't feel any psychoactive effects, whatever. What's tough is when people claim to have therapeutic benefit from microdosing, you know, you get into this world of, OK, where well, are they feeling a low dose? Are they feeling something that's mood elevating um, or not? So there's a bit of kind of chicken and egg or a circular problem to that. but. Technically it should be a dose level in which it's subperceptual. You're not feeling any effects from the psychedelic, but there could be other health benefits. We hit on inflammation at low doses. I mean, some people anecdotally do claim to get a lot of benefit. Um, at the same time, there's been research to suggest, you know, in controlled studies, it, it may not carry that much benefit. There may be a lot of placebo involved.
1: That's what, well. so basically you're saying if it's a subperceptual dose, if I go to my therapist and I say I wanna do uh, ketamine assisted therapy, I wouldn't feel any of the effects or the dissociation you're talking about, but by having a normal conversation and it working on some kind of very, maybe subconscious level, it should theoretically work out better for me.
0: Um, potentially ketamine would kind of be its own, own beast. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say with, with psilocybin, um, that's the idea is low dose. You, you shouldn't feel it but some people do claim to have health benefits and I've you know I've talked to folks who suffer from severe depression and they claim that it completely clears up when they microdose and then when they when they shut it off then it seems to return so it does seem to return pretty quickly So, you know, there is, you run into all these issues of there's a lot of high placebo response in anything around neuropsychiatry. Mm -hmm. So that can confound a lot of the data. Um, And there's a lot of patient heterogeneity, as we said. So there could be subpopulations of patients that do respond really well. So the patient selection wasn't optimized in these studies. It's tough to know.
1: So I'm such a big believer in that. Cause right when guys come to us and say, what does testosterone feel like? What does it feel like taking Clomid or an AstraZone? What is the hormone optimization game? And I said, listen, it is different for every single person. The way you yeah. feel at 660 testosterone level is very different than the way I feel, the way my personality comes out is very different. So if it's not a micro dose per se, and it's not a macro dose, cause that's probably the, the wrong direction or maybe sometimes it is a macro yeah. dose. It's low dose. And I think that's the word you use. So low dose therapeutic gives you a therapeutic benefit. It makes you feel different. If I wanted to get started, Right. Let's say I'm a guy. I've tried multiple SSRIs. I feel depressed. Some people would actually classify that as TRD, treatment-resistant depression, or maybe I have PTSD, and everything that I've done hasn't really helped my life. How do I get myself involved with some of these therapies?
0: Where the data is good around, especially treatment-resistant indications, is to go for the high dose experience. So, Mm -hmm. um, for treatment-resistant depression, there's a lot of work on psilocybin right now. There's a company, Compass Pathways. Which is in phase three clinical trials for that for treatment resistant depression around PTSD, MDMA is an incre- is incredibly effective, which has a different pharmacology that we can get into, but um, very effective for treating PTSD. But these are high dose sessions where you have a therapist involved. There is more cost involved, but there's a lot of therapist oversight, a lot of psychotherapy that goes along with it. But the data is really compelling. I mean, around PTSD, it's a little over two thirds of. Of patients suffering from treatment-resistant PTSD are in long-term remission after MDMA therapy. So after one or two administrations of, of MDMA, the data around psilocybin not quite as good, um, but still really compelling and, and definitely beats placebo. And but you know these are treatment-resistant populations, so a lot more refractory to any any pharmacotherapies.
1: What does that mean, refractory?
0: They kind of bounce back into their depressed state. So it's you know any any sort of Um, medications. It's tougher to treat them with. But the data around psilocybin, definitely better than SSRIs for treatment-resistant depression. Now, MDD, Very, very effective, and the data is much
1: better there. And MDD is major depressive disorder, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. If you kind of imagine concentric circles. So, um, this was pre COVID, there were about 300 million people worldwide suffering from major depressive disorder. And then the smaller subset, about a third of that, 100 million, were treatment resistant. So, in which treatment to qualify as treatment resistant, you have to have not responded to two pharmacotherapies. So two different regimens of medication, which would be SSRIs in this case.
1: I mean, that, that's a big number. 100 a hundred million people that try an SSRI and they still feel depressed at the end of the day. Yeah.
0: It kind of shows the paltry track record of SSRIs, quite frankly. And that was also pre-COVID. Post-COVID, a lot of these figures have skyrocketed by two or three X. So our estimate is close to a billion people worldwide suffering from probably some sort of major depressive disorder. Now, you know, varying degrees, you think about treatment resistant, that could be 200, 300 million.
1: And you know, the the most interesting thing, the moment you tell me a billion people, right? I think about the fact that people stigmatize mental health so much. And the reality is we all have some kind of mental health I hate to use the word issue because it's not really an issue. It's just a very often an imbalance. And that yeah. leads us to think very different ways. With a billion people, it's like it's one of the most common things, right? You're talking about like a sixth of the entire population that ends up happening. I mean, maybe like an eighth, but that's 10 12% of the world's population. That's huge.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I think it's, you know, one in four people say at some point in their life, they suffer from a, a major health disorder. I think that was in the United States, but it impacts a lot of people, you know, at, at some point, And, you know, there's lifestyle, there's a lot of factors that, that can influence it. And if lifestyle changes, some of that can clear up. But I think everyone's been touched by this, or mm-hmm. at least everyone has a close family member or loved one who suffered.
1: So a billion people, maybe worldwide, 200 million people with treatment resistant depression. Psilocybin feels like the thing for the majority of the masses because it's a little bit, we'll call it gentler maybe. Is that the right way to describe it?
0: I would say so. I mean, ketamine is probably the gentlest. It is kind of, I think a lot of people, again, varies from patient to patient, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of people think is ketamine of ketamine is one of the more palatable ones. If you're gonna go for a larger dose, is kind of a, a jumping off point, at least as an introduction to a hallucinogenic or dissociative type experience. Psilocybin, it can be harrowing at times, mm. you know, that you kind of go through the valley of death sometimes, uh, <laughs> in a journey. But when you come out on the back end, you know, it, it can be incredibly enlightening. Um, but you know, and that's a, it's a big commitment to six hours to be tripping balls. Part of my friend, <laughs> a lot of time where ketamine, you know, one to two, so uh, at least you can get off the, you can get off the ride if you're not enjoying it.
1: What, what so. does that mean? Like the valley of hell? Actually, let me, yeah. let, help me understand, right? Take ketamine, Take psilocybin and take MDMA, and walk yeah. me through each of those journeys in a therapeutic session. What I should actually expect? So,
0: you know, both with high dose ketamine and psilocybin, a lot of people attest to experience experiencing what's known as ego dissolution or mm-hmm. ego death. Um, which, again, can be harrowing for mm-hmm. for someone who hasn't had that, you know, for the first time to really kind of lose your sense of self. Yep. Um, but it, in a lot of ways, it can lead to a, a, this deep feeling of calm and interconnectedness with the universe as well. And I think uh, um, it lowers a lot of neuroticism, that is for sure. But kind of a, a deeper contentment overall is where you come out on the backside. But, you know, for a lot of people, if you especially if you have what's known as mental rigidity um you know people have who are kind of fall into that subpopulation have a tougher time responding mm-hmm. so it can be tougher to let go and really sink into that experience but you know that is like the most therapeutic um kind of subjective effect with psilocybin and ketamine and there's a, a rating that we call peak mysticism mm-hmm. where you kind of achieve a mystical state in a way. And it's sort of a, a questionnaire that people can attest to. And if they achieve that, it usually correlates very heavily with a strong you know, durable therapeutic effect. MDMA is very different in that it really, it's not dissociative. It's not hallucinogenic in any way. I mean, it's it's really you're just releasing endogenous neurotransmitters which is what you know Adderall does now you're doing it in different ratios so you're releasing a lot more serotonin Adderall's dopamine norepinephrine um but there's a you know there are the mechanism rhymes in some ways so you're very lucid there's a quality with MDMA um where you kind of get a shutting down of the amygdala as well and there's what uh, an effect that we call hyponesia so amnesia you kind of forget things or suppress memories. Here you're you allow a lot of times traumatic memories to bubble up, but mm-hmm. the amygdala isn't activated. So you're not in a fearful state. And you're really able to evaluate those traumas in depth and kind of live through them and process them. And there's a lot of yeah, there's been a lot of studies around PTSD where it's kind of an inability to process a really traumatic experience. I know they've done, you know, they've looked at folks when they sleep as well, that again, they're like, The the brain is kind of misfiring. It's not really in a truly rested state. And then when you're in a wakeful state, uh, a trauma bubbles up. You kind of go into a a fight or flight state and try to suppress it. So MDMA kind of shuts that off, allows you to evaluate it much more objectively. And a lot of people attest to being better after one or two experiences of that.
1: So maybe I'm and this is I have to be really careful how I take this step. Right. Let's say I'm a soldier. I've been in war. I've seen someone very close to me injured dramatically. Very often when I think about that, or I take that memory that was absolutely, in your words, harrowing, and I push it down throughout my entire life. And every time it comes up, I have this jolting experience where I'm uncomfortable, it was a horrible moment, I feel like I'm unsafe. But when I'm on something like MDMA, I let that memory come up, I can objectively look at it without the emotions being attached to it, and I can rationally say, I'm okay now. I shouldn't let that thing bother me. And then, at that point in time, does it go away, or is this the kind of thing where you need to consistently do it to analyze it? And I, I have a good feeling what you're going to say is it's all case dependent. But is there any research one way or another?
0: Most of the research suggests, you know, after two administrations of MDMA, okay. um, just for you know to be really sure. But a lot of people respond to just one. But after that, they're in long term remission. So they no longer register as having PTSD afterwards. So, you know, there is a little bit of case by case. Again, there's a lot of patient heterogeneity. So there are some non responders, but a lot of people do after, you know, one, you know, kind of the, the typical regimen. And then they can go on and, and live a relatively healthy, normal life mm-hmm. afterwards, which is pretty remarkable that you don't have to be stuck on medications your whole life. You think of the effect on family members all of that that you're not managing symptoms but you're you really seem to be addressing root causes of the disease
1: you know it's so we the dinner we were at last night there was a there was a gentleman there that talked about the passing of his father right and he yeah. said that i went i did a guided therapeutic journey and i was able to process the death of my father Within several weeks to a month versus we're now six months out and he's consistently going through other people are consistently going through that pain And the other thing that was really interesting is uh, and I would say sad uh, Because I also experienced the the loss of my father recently too is that I had a year to say goodbye to my father his happened without ever knowing right and so Speak to me a little bit about when people take psilocybin um, specifically in therapeutic sessions what does that experience look like and what is the therapist doing to help them actually deal with that trauma and pain
0: yeah you know it is interesting i think a lot of traditional psychedelics are great with dealing with loss Mm -hmm. without a doubt um but so prior to a psilocybin session there's usually some very rigorous what we call pre-integration so talking with the therapist kind of making an assessment um you know of what's kind of driving someone's depression or mental health disorder? Um, What are kind of the key qualms to it? What is, you know, what are some of the psychotherapeutic roots of that? So, you know, it it provides a bit of a blueprint and a map prior to the experience. And then going into the experience, you know, in a perfect world, the therapist doesn't have to do much and the patient doesn't need a lot of handholding and they kind of go to where they need to go. But usually the therapist is there. They can be a bit of a guide. So, you know, eventually, you know, being able to calmly bring up a topic that was brought up prior that they may want to evaluate. But more typically, you kind of let the patient be on their own. They put an eye mask over, which is really helpful. You're playing calming music as well, which is conducive to a psychedelic state. And I think the biggest thing, you know, what they usually say is when you have a fearful experience in a psychedelic journey, don't run away from it. Kind of don't run away from the monster. Yeah, go into it. Exactly. And so oftentimes if a patient is struggling or some fear starts bubbling up, it's really nice to have a therapist there who is able to handle that, kind of calm them down, and also encourage them to go deeper and evaluate that, which is usually where you get really deep therapeutic benefit. So I'd say those are kind of, that's the primary role. You could have adverse events. People could get very scared. Therapists are trained on how to manage that and and navigate that. That's more for adverse events. Most patients, you know, are totally fine.
1: And then what about, you know, there's this entire word around integrating the experience. What does that even mean? Yeah, it's kind of, I know
0: it is kind of an amorphous mm-hmm. term, you know, I mean, it it really is psychotherapy. So you have the pre-integration and then after you have your experience, a lot of times you're like, what the F was that? You know, <laughs> what, what just happened? Like yep. that, that was mind blowing. You know, what did I just go through? And so afterwards, you know, making sense of that really solidifying some of the key lessons as well, kind of codifying those, making those more concrete is where post-integration plays a really big role. So the therapist is there as well. And, you know, the therapist can take notes and usually bring up things that came up in your session um, that you may have even forgotten. So it's really integrating, you know, everything that happened, kind of the key lessons, the key insights that hopefully you can carry with you for a long period of time.
1: If I'm a patient, how do I evaluate the different options out there? Is there one that you specifically speak very highly of?
0: Um, there is, actually. There's a, there's a few, especially around the ketamine space, since mm-hmm. ketamine currently can be prescribed off-label. So a lot of people are for depression. Um, there's a, a variety of companies. There's, um, you know, so the one company we're invested in and that we think is the safest bet is called Journey Clinical. Yep. So what they do is they connect patients with psychotherapists, or there may already be a relationship there, but usually the psychotherapist doesn't have access to a compound pharmacy to get their patient ketamine, and then also get trained up to offer ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So there's a lot more oversight involved in that, whereas there are some other models. I don't want to name names or, or pick on people, but other models where they just kind of send you ketamine and you go on your merry way, which I think is very dangerous. On,
1: no, no therapeutic session. Just here's ketamine.
0: Sometimes no. So there's one company where you know there's a trip sitter involved. You, you sort of find a designated trip sitter, but that could be. Your roommate or your neighbor down the hallway. Which, if someone's if someone's not experienced in what that looks like, the odds of them freaking out and calling the cops or something are are pretty high. (laughs) Like it just that doesn't seem safe. And uh, I've heard some crazy stories too of people like crushing up their lozenge and snorting it and things like that. Like there's no oversight. It's kind of the wild west there. So our bet is there's a going to be a big regulatory crackdown in just the risk of patient harm, even if it's still low, you know, you want very, very tight controls. So Journey clinicals the bet we've made, um, and we think that's the safest. I do think a, a trained, therapist a trained guide should be involved in the process with something you know this isn't this isn't cannabis these are strong drugs
1: and and so there's no MDMA no psilocybin at this point in time that's been no. actually legalized for use but we're no. almost there
0: yeah we're almost there um it still will be in person so MDMA they maps has wrapped up their phase three clinical trials mm-hmm. so that should be on the market we're anticipating maybe late 2024, early 2025 is what it looks like. Next in line is psilocybin. They're going, Compass Pathways is going into phase three clinical trials. So we're probably looking at 2026 or 2027 that that hits the market. But those will be, there will be a lot of active oversight. You'll you'll go to a clinic of some kind um, and have a therapist involved. I don't see those going telehealth anytime soon.
1: And so- 2024, 25, 26, 27, we're right around the corner from a lot of this stuff happening. And so it is kind of, a lot of us are holding our breath until maybe some of the more potent ones, as you said, kind of like ketamine easiest, then probably psilocybin, then MDMA, although MDMA would probably get approved before psilocybin. It will be. Yeah,
0: it will. That's what it's looking like. So, which is pretty crazy that like ecstasy, you know, you can go to a a psychiatrist one day and be like, hey, I have PTSD. And they're like, I'm going to prescribe you MD,
1: like Molly. I do have a weird question. So, someone, I'm not going to say who, (laughs) asking for a friend, asking for a friend, they have really bad migraines. They get them all the time. Yeah, yeah. Can, Can any of these products that you're talking about actually help with something like that?
0: That's, it looks like it migraines, and then there's cluster headaches, which uh, there's some overlap. You know, there there seems to be maybe a slightly different mechanism at play with cluster headaches, but still, you know, excruciating, mm-hmm. my like piercing migraine type symptoms. They all rhyme in that way. Uh, definitely within cluster headaches, people attest to a lot of benefit, even from microdosing. psilocybin, for example, or LSD, or there's an analog known as 2-bromo LSD, Mm -hmm. which actually isn't psychoactive. And some people have been working on that as well for treating migraine, which would be you know, when you think about it, that would be really compelling. Of Sometimes you don't want to trip balls all the time <laughs> to treat your migraines. You know, you still want to be active. So 2-bromo could be really compelling. But there's a lot of really good anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. around the benefit of these for treating migraine. They, they also, the pharmacology is interesting. They hit some of, so triptans are what are currently on the market for treating migraines. These do, and that operates on serotonergic targets as well, more in the 5-HT1 class. Mm-hmm. Um, but psychedelics have some overlap there. So there might be a, a similar pharmacology as well that would explain that. But people have gotten, I mean, I've talked to people who've gotten tremendous benefit and they haven't responded to existing drugs on the market, but have with psychedelics.
1: And do you, and so does that mean though, are you taking it once like your psilocybin, MDMA, you get to a very high superphysiological physiological dose and then all of a sudden it's gone, you return to a baseline or do you have to do it a little bit more often or do you just take microdoses on a regular basis?
0: Some people have said microdoses. Um, there was one company, they're called Beckley SciTech. They were pursuing an orphan indication within cluster headaches, and they were going to do kind of a medium dose. Like it would be, you know, let's say the equivalent to, you know, of like raw mushrooms would be like half a gram to mm-hmm. maybe a gram, but that's probably too much where you feel it, but you're not totally out in la la land. Um, so there's been different- Not kind every of- day. Um, not every day. Not no, every this day. would be more, you know, as migraine symptoms, or in this case, cluster headache symptoms start to percolate, you'd go to a clinic, administer it, and hopefully you kind of get a long-term therapeutic tail for a period of time with that. So I've seen different regimens, some pulsing with microdosing, others that kind of medium dose, you do it once and the symptoms clear up for for at least that sort of episode. Of an and, attack.
1: And so talk to me about like so the, the right now, right, if you wanted to microdose mus- mushrooms, very often your people are quite literally getting caps and stems or grinding them down and putting them into like pretty crude capsules, right? Yeah. yeah. Um the future of this, what does it look like? Is it completely high quality manufactured in pharmaceutical uh I would say quality and manufacturing plants or is it really This is the world we live in and it's just going to be these kind of like sketchy looking caps that's the first thing and the second thing is other people have like been talking about injecting some of these things
0: (laughs) yeah one guy did inject himself with mushroom spores and he started growing mushrooms in his whole body. Do not do that. So wait, wait, hold on. Is that a true yeah, yeah. statement? Yeah, that, that is true. There was, mm-hmm. I, this was like three years ago. Some guy, I think he wanted to like permanently trip or something. And terrible idea. That just like invokes The Last of Us. I don't know if you've seen that show. But like I, yep. literally like spores growing in your body. But mm-hmm. he did try to inject psilocybin spores. Not a good idea. Definitely not a good idea. But the future we see at Palo Santo, you know, I think this might be a controversial thing to say, but I think cannabis has been really messy. The role, A lot of people would attest it's just been a very, very messy rollout. From a regulatory standpoint, you know, being state compliant, not federal compliant, again, the quality is suspect. And a lot of times you don't really have standards. There aren't a lot of validated medical claims. So, you know. We don't want to repeat a lot of the same mistakes that happen there with psychedelics. Also, these are very, very strong drugs as well. So, I mean, they are potent. They're, there's a lot of therapeutic benefit. But, you know, like like we mentioned, they can be harrowing as well. So I think having tighter controls, having a more pharmaceutical model around these makes a lot more sense. Um, and part of that, you know, quality control mm-hmm. is a big thing. So the FDA has a very, very high bar um, on the standards of quality any pharmaceutical manufacturer should have. It's what's called GMP grade, good manufacturing practices. So it's very high purity. And I do think knowing the dosing you're getting and the quality of that is very, very important to patients when you're dealing with incredibly strong medications like these. So a lot of the future we see, you know, there is a recreational market or I'd rather, I'll call it a legalization market because we can talk about the nuances. There aren't dispensaries in Oregon or Colorado. Mm -hmm. It is emerging. Um, I think that'll be slower than people think. And if you go a biotech pathway, even if it's a scheduled compound, if you get it FDA approved, The DEA then reschedules that, and there's a lot of precedent that that occurs. So we actually think that's a much better Trojan horse way to get these to market and with validated medical claims and a safer way as well that avoids adverse events for patients.
1: So you think they fall into schedule, I'm guessing, so right, a lot of these would probably be classified Scheduled 1 and 2. Is that a crazy statement?
0: Currently Schedule 1 for for all psychedelics,
1: yeah. And so for people who that kind of know or don't understand the scheduling system, Scheduling 1 means like you should not be taking these me- these products because uh-huh. they're very often dangerous or they can actually harm your life. Yeah. Although some of these seem to be incredibly useful for your life. Schedule two are things like Adderall, schedule th- three are things like testosterone or uh, buprenor- buprenorphine. Yeah. Um, Ketamine, yep, ketamine, yep, ketamine I
0: think, yeah, I think schedule three, I yeah. don't know, it starts to get, you know, it's kind of once you go from schedule three, four, five, doesn't make it as big of a difference.
1: And so do you but, think these things get pulled down eventually? And so they, they're, they you are able to prescribe them far easier?
0: They definitely would. So definitely at least to schedule two. So the criteria for schedule one, um, I'm kind of uh, simplifying it, but it's really you know, no known medical use case and significant risk of harm to the mm-hmm. user and risk of abuse. Yep. So, you know, if you find a medical use case, which you would validate that through double blind, placebo controlled FDA clinical trials, by definition, you no longer meet schedule one criteria. Now, whether you're two or three There's a big open debate on on where these would fall. A lot of people think it should be three. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, cocaine falls within schedule two. So, you know, it can be an effective numbing agent, things like that. I think a lot of people would attest psychedelics do not have a harm profile nearly on par with cocaine or or even Adderall, potentially, which is an amphetamine, Mm -hmm. quite frankly. Now, you know, whether cultural effects, prior stigmatization plays a role in where they fall and where the DEA puts them. We're not exactly sure. But they definitely will get rescheduled to a lower scheduling. There will be a known medical use case. um, And they can then be used. It just kind of determines the scheduling can determine the controls around them. Which,
1: yeah. And so let's say I start taking some of these medications, right? You said a lot of these will most likely only be available in brick and mortar clinics with therapists when they first get uh, approved by the FDA. So you're talking about for the next five years, that's the world we live in. I can remember like five years ago talking about some of these things with people was completely taboo no one would mention it yeah and now all of a sudden I'm quite literally with the I would say the chairman of some of the biggest companies in the country and I can think of one guy in, uh, in very specifically uh, we will say a top 50 t- fortune 50 company most conservative guy I met and told me that he recently did quite literally every single week for 24 weeks psilocybin assisted therapy and he was able to finally figure out how to fix the problems from his childhood which helped him relieve so much anxiety that he was having and i think it's just actually becoming like a badge of empowerment to a certain degree and i think you're right when you say zeitgeist we're in it like we're literally living in it right now these conversations are happening i actually think a lot of momentum is generated before these even get approved by the fda it's just a function of we need to get it done
0: Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of blocking and tackling involved getting it done. That's a crazy, that's a remarkable story too. But I I do think for kind of leadership training Mm -hmm. or enhancing leadership, a lot of people find benefit of these. I mean, there's a lot of retreats and Costa Rica and Jamaica, semi-legal jurisdictions that you hear, you know, a lot of CEOs going to and getting a lot of benefit from. So that would, you know, that would check out in a lot of ways. So I think there's as like, guys, I do get a little concerned that it's almost taking on a panacea like quality hmm. right now in the media, which is like uh, you set yourself up for failure of, you know, nothing is a, an ultimate miracle drug. I do think oftentimes these can catalyze lifestyle changes, but if you have a lifestyle that is not conducive to mental health long-term, you're probably going to rebound ultimately. So you run into some of those confounding factors that I do think these can be a really kind of nice catalyst, can really lead patients to changing a lot about their life. They're not going to fix everything.
1: So. I'm, I'm really happy you said that because yeah, I think a lot of times when guys come to us, they think that testosterone is a silver bullet. Yeah. What we actually tell them is that there actually are no silver bullets. The only silver bullets are lifestyle changes that you make consciously and then integrate into your life consistently for the rest of it. It's real work. And the way to look at something like testosterone is that if you're in a low point in your life or you don't feel like yourself anymore, it gives you a little bit of momentum. What you choose to do with that momentum is actually kind of your path to enlightenment, to become a better version of yourself. But I mean, yeah, like, Make no mistakes. This isn't you take some testosterone or uh, Clomid and all of a sudden you feel like a different person tomorrow. It's you have to actually take the energy you're given and start crafting. And I think it's very similar with what you're talking about too, which is it isn't a one and done. If you have mental health, uh, I would say that you need to have taken care of, it is a lifelong. I got to take care of myself regularly.
0: I, I completely agree that you know. I think you do need to. Again, we have highly inflammatory diets, lifestyles. We yep. have a lot of stress factors in our life that is gonna that is gonna cause people to rebound to a depressed or anxious state if you don't kind of. T- turn the dials to change your lifestyle. In psychiatry, these are very large patient populations. I think a frustration is the way we diagnose mental health is very, very archaic. I mm. think decades from now, we're gonna look back at it and, and view it as, I don't wanna use the word barbaric, incredibly antiquated. Mm. That you know you take a survey and you, and then we determine whether you're depressed or not. Like the body only has a few ways to communicate that it's sick, but the underlying root causes can be very, very different. I mean, even within schizophrenia, you know, there's 80 subtypes we think of schizophrenia. So it doesn't relate to psychedelics, but I think it's a clue that you know you can get a lot of variety variability even within a specific indication. So, you know, not everyone's going to respond. I do, you know, everyone's kind of proselytizing about psychedelics. I, I do see, I can foresee media headlines in a year or two saying so-and-so, you know, went in with high hopes and like they're worse off than when they started or, or things like that. And, you know, it's, we know how the media goes through these cycles. So I'm always, I want to be a little cautious in some ways.
1: Well, this but, actually comes back to the point that you made. And what we try to tell people all the time Every single person is a individual. They have a very unique biochemistry. What works yeah. for one person doesn't work for another. I mean, I saw the, maybe it was a Business Insider article or a Wall Street Journal article about ketamine use and talking about the problems that come from uh, prolonged use and your inability to kind of like hold your urine in and become incontinent. Yeah. And the reality yeah. is like, for some portion of people, it's going to happen. But for some other portion of people that have treatment-resistant depression that nothing else has worked for, it's gonna change their life. And it's like that with any medication, right? If I take yeah. too much blood pressure medication, if I take too much Tylenol, I mean, those you'll start to have those negative effects. What are two companies that you're particularly excited about? You're excited about all the companies in your portfolio. What yeah. are two and why? Can I pick three? Yeah, you can pick all right, three. Yeah.
0: We'll, we'll do, I think kind of this forefront of next generation drug discovery is really, really fascinating. So, and I'll, I'll lay the groundwork for this answer, but you think, you know, we have we're consuming a lot of the same drugs that people were in the 50s and 60s, but we don't drive the same cars. We, there's a lot of technology that we you know, developed then that we don't use now, like mm-hmm. that's evolved. So a lot of R&D was halted artificially by government fiat, but our capabilities in pharmacology, our capabilities in medicinal chemistry, Have far surpassed what they were back then. So I think there's a need for a catch-up in the psychedelic space to develop new drugs, and we kind of hit on that that earlier. That's a lot of our bet. So you know, the companies doing that that I think are really interesting. We are investors in Delix Therapeutics, so they're working on you know what they call psychoplastogens, really pursuing this neuroplasticity hypothesis, which I think is really compelling. Um, And that would be a non psychoactive medication hits a lot of the same targets as traditional psychedelics do and you know you think about the the enhanced access of a medication like that how many more patients can afford that the likelihood of payers to reimburse that you can have it can be much more far reaching is the nice thing so that excites me like the the issues of patient equity um and patient accessibility are really important mm-hmm. to me. So a lot of people will not be able to afford six-hour long, do, you know, long therapeutic sessions. Hold so, on.
1: What is, what is a six-hour long therapeutic session cost? Oh.
0: They're saying for MDMA, the full bill, it's something like twenty to twenty-five thousand is what they think. Got now it. the breakdown of like the actual cost of the drug versus how much is psychotherapy, which maybe you can bill that as talk therapy. I think that's getting hammered out. So does some get reimbursed? You know, there's a lot up in the air, but as things stand, that's really expensive and time consuming too. It's yep. tough for people to, to find that time to really carve out that space in their life. And psilocybin probably on par with that as well. So kind of similar time frames involved. So Delix is one. Gilgamesh is another one. They have a really interesting ketamine analog in their portfolio. Again, a non-dissociative analog of ketamine where, you you know, you're not feeling the trippy Mm effects. But there does seem to be, at least in animal models, it seems to be very, very compelling. You know, I think that's also interesting. And then the last company, one we know, both know about Tactogen as well, I think is interesting. So MDMA Great molecule, and I've had some great therapeutic sessions with it. But a lot of us can attest the come down very gnarly for a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the three, four day, just crazy depressed states. You're almost like, Holy crap, was that worth it? So, Tactogen is developing an analog of MDMA that extirpates those come down symptoms. There's also a bit during the session of you get less of the kind of euphoric rush, the vertiginous qualities, all of that, which can make it a more optimized experience. But I think that's really interesting. And it's not a scheduled compound. So the the odds of it being more accessible to patients also very high. Whereas MDMA is gonna have a lot of controls around it. So you can kind of see the motif across some of these favorites. Our companies working on next gen drugs with an optimized pharmacology. And the corollary to that is patient access and equity that a lot more people will be able to access and afford those therapies and those will be much more far reaching.
1: Man, I'm excited. I'm, yeah. so, I'm, I'm so excited. It's a cool future. It is a very, very cool future. Well, listen, Tim, I really, really appreciate having you here. You guys are doing unbelievably great work and we're, I think, I speak collectively excited that you decided to take the, take the trip and um, decide to make this kind of your mission in your life thank you hey guys thanks for listening into this episode of hone in if you like this episode please make sure to subscribe and hey if you have a minute drop a comment below with your biggest learning your insights your takeaways from this conversation i would personally love to hear from you tune in each week for more answers to questions solutions to problems and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter stronger and longer One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat not, intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional. And it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.